we see in last week we heard about Othniel, and in Judges 3.11 we see that after Othniel's death, the, the sin cycle begins again, right? The, the book of Judges is this, this cycle of sin, right? From sin to servitude to supplication, salvation, and silence. And this continued over and over again. And after each judge would die, the cycle would begin again. And so let, let's look at this cycle. And in Judges 3.12, we see that the, the people again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Right? They, they worshipped idols. They, they did what was right in their own eyes. And they end up in servitude. If you look at the second part of verse 12, it says, And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Right, so now we see Israel is facing uh, multiple enemies, right? The Moabites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, this huge force. And, and they take possession of the city of Palms. Now, now, you have to know this is a devastating loss for them. It, the city of Palms is, is the city of Jericho. And if you go read the book of Judges, God gave Israel great victory over the city of of Jericho, where, where God's people obediently followed his commands and his instructions, although they appeared very strange, right? They, they march around the city walls, and God causes the walls to crumble. So there's this amazing deliverance, that this amazing thing that God does is now, you know, just completely wasted, it feels like, right? And, and, Mo, and uh, Eglon takes over this city, and they end up in slavery for 18 years. 18 years. I mean, their children are growing up in slavery. Until, until verse 14b, we see that the people, right, we see supplication as the people cry out to the Lord of Israel. They cry out, finally. They cry out for mercy. They, they remember the Lord. And salvation happens. And in 14, the last part of 14, 14c, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the, the Benjamin, Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, that might seem like a strange detail. Like, well, why does it say he's left-handed? Like, who cares that he's right or left-handed? But the way that that reads in the, in, in the Israel is that he was, he was, he was uh, unable to use his right hand or that he was impotent in his right hand. That's what that expression would mean, this left-handed man. So he had some kind of handicap in his right hand. And that's an important part of the story, right? The, the underdog story, that God's going to use this guy with the, this handicap. And he's also, it tells us that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the, the smallest and most unlikely tribe uh, of people. And so the very thing that, that Eglon would view, Eglon the king would view as a handicap would ultimately become the, the thing that enables Ehud to take out the king. So let's follow the story here. In verse 15, it tells us that the people sent their tribute with, with Ehud. And so Ehud goes to deliver this, this offering. That The word tribute there is the word that they would use for offering like a grain offering to the Lord. Right? A, a worship offering, a, a sacrifice. And, and they're offering something to Eglon that belongs to the Lord. 
And so the, the people were oppressed by Eglon. They, it's, it's most likely that they weren't necessarily like literally under, under slavery, but that he was oppressing them and demanding that they give them this tribute that would have caused them great financial, economic hardship. Right? Maybe it would have caused uh, hunger among the people as, as he's taking this. And it's got to bother Israel, right, that this belongs to God and we're giving it to this guy who's oppressing us. And so Israel sends Ehud to deliver the tribute. There's no way they would have, they would have sent Ehud as deliverer, right? He, he's only worth delivering this, this offering, not fighting. And you see in, in verse 16, it tells us that Ehud makes a small sword. It's a cubit in length. A cubit would have been your elbow to about your, your hand or your wrist. So it's a small sword that, that he hides on, on, his, uh, on his right leg, right, the opposite. Uh, a right-handed man would have hit it on, on his left-handed leg, which is possibly one of the reasons why he was able to sneak in because it was on the opposite leg that they were expecting. And Ehud's waiting for his opportunity to get close to Eglon, right? You got to think in, in his mind, he, he, he's strategically thinking of how he's going to take this king out. It tells us in verse 17 that he delivers the tribute to Eglon. And strangely, it tells us that Eglon is very fat, right? And, and there's this strange kind of dark, ironic comedy that happens in, in this story. It, it's just... It's just strange, and I think it's, it's left to, it, it's designed to make you feel like, all right, look how, look how God saves, right? To, to create this, this, um, this celebration in God's justice. And it tells us, so he tells us, uh, and, and so he's very fat, which is most likely because he's grown fat off of the tribute that Israel has been offering him, right? The grain offering that, that Israel has been giving him, he's been eating it and consuming it and, and growing fatter and fatter over these 18 years. And, and so he's been on a, a very high-carb diet. I guess they didn't know about the Atkins diet back then yet, right? The low-carb diet. And he's probably uh, bloated off of, uh, off of uh, gluten. Why couldn't I think of the word, right? He's been on a high-gluten diet. He's bloated and and someone's got to help him get his diet in, in line here. And so it, show, it tells us that Ehud misses his first opportunity, right? He, he's not able to get close enough to Eglon. And it, and it, tells, him that, it tells us that him and his, the men who are carrying the tribute, which had to be pretty big to have multiple guys bringing this in, uh, they, they leave. But it, it appears that Ehud has, a, has an idea. It tells us that he turns back at the idols, right? He sees these idols, and, and something must have clicked in his head where, where he could go back and have a sec, second opportunity at Eglon if he told him that he had a, had a, a message from God for him, right? And so, so he comes as a, as a kind of an oracle from Eglon's gods. You would think that Eglon's thinking he's, he's got a message from one of his false gods. And as he, he goes back, he, he comes to Eglon and tells him he has a secret message. And, and Eglon, strangely, 
calls, tells his men to leave and close the door and, and, and has this private little meeting with Ehud. And as, as Ehud gets up to, to receive this secret message, right? Uh, Eglon gets up to receive this secret message. Ehud seizes his opportunity and thrusts with his left hand, right? He pulls it out and thrusts this sword into his belly. And it tells us that he's so fat, even the, the handle goes in and gets stuck. Now, there's this strange potty humor in the Bible, right? There's literally potty humor in the Bible. My kids love this kind of stuff, right? The, after this happens, it tells us that dung pours out of him, right? That's disgusting, right? Dung, poop literally pours out of this guy which leaves a, a horrible smell. And his men are outside the door, and, and they smell this, and, and they're embarrassed to go in there. They think he's in the restroom. Uh, now, uh, everyone knows, right, you don't mess with the man when he's on the toilet, when he's on his throne. Uh, uh, as a parent, you know, or, or as a leader, you know, sometimes your, your only peace, time for peace and quiet is on the toilet. And your kids love to ruin it for you too, right? And so I can, I can see them, you know, hey, man, we don't want to disturb him. He's, he's taking care of his business, and he's out there until they can wait no longer, right? They're, I'm sure they start knocking, and, hey, what's going on in there? Are you all right? Can we help you out? And he's not responding. They, they burst in and find him dead, and Ehud has escaped. It, it's a disgusting, <laughs> horrific scene, right? Now it tells us that, Ehud will now be seen as the deliverer, right? Where, where maybe before no one would follow him because of his handicap. Now they'll, they'll follow him because they, they've seen how, how God's delivered this king into his hands. And so he goes and he, he blows, sounds the trumpet. He, he gathers the troops and, and they go and they defeat the Moabites. And it tells us that 10,000 of the Moabites are defeated. Right? There's this, this great victory achieved, and, and God delivers them out of, out of this, this slavery. And it tells us, and then it ends with silence, right? We see the last thing. Verse 30 tells us that Israel had rest for eight years. So we've seen now Eglon and, his, and these Moabites have oppressed Israel for 18 years, and, and now there's this, it seems like, God makes a mockery of these people, right? They're seen as overweight and, 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 and ignorant and, and foolish to be taken out by a handicapped guy. And, and so you have to ask, why the humor? Why the, why the kind of the, this humor? And I think it's, be, it's to show us like that how powerful God is, right? That, that this, this great powerful army when it stands before God, is, is reduced to a mockery, right? This great and powerful army that, that the Israelites couldn't do anything, right? They, they couldn't overcome them. They couldn't beat them on their own strength. It is nothing compared to God. Right? That's how powerful God is. And I think that's why the humor is there. And I think it's also a, it's a, to display that their slavery was their own choice, right? They were stuck there because they had chosen to be there. They had 
forgotten God. They had refused to call out to him for 18 years. And, and at any time, God could have delivered them if they would cry out. And so we can look back at the Israelites and, 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 and say, you know, how could you guys be so dumb to be enslaved by this, these, these idiots, right? But the Israelites would look at us today and would say, how could you guys be so dumb to be enslaved to idols, right? They would say the same thing to us. And so this, this story has to, has to make you ask yourself, is there something that I'm enslaved to, right, that is controlling my life, something that in my life feels like it's too large for me to overcome, and I'm stuck, I'm stuck in this, this part of my life, right, and I can't move forward. I feel like I'm enslaved to this sin or this, this anger or or maybe it's an unconfessed sin or, or an idol or, or an addiction, right? What is the thing that appears too large? And I, I just feel like I've been in this place for a long time, right? Maybe it's even something that someone else did to you, a, a sin someone committed to you, and I, I've been stuck here. And this story calls us to cry out to God, right? Don't remain in the, pre- in the oppression in that slavery, right? Don't waste 18 years stuck in that. Because at any moment, we're reminded through this story that, that God can deliver us, right? God can heal us. God can, can help us in any situation, including, I mean, this, I mean, this is bigger than any of our situations, right? This is a, a whole nation. And if God can deal with that, he can deal with us. And, and there's hope for us. And so we have to remember I think we should be encouraged to not waste another day stuck wherever we're at, All right? Cry out for the Lord. Trust in the Lord as your deliverer. Let's move to the second cycle. We've got to move kind of quick here. Again, we see the cycle begins in one, right? And the people of Israel do what's evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud dies. Again, it starts after Ehud, after the, the next judge died. They end up in servitude. Verse 2, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera. And if you skip down to 3b, it tells us that he had 900 chariots of armor. And he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Right? It's gotten worse for Israel. After only eight years of peace, now they're under another, another king. Until verse 3, it tells us that They cry out to the Lord for help, right? Supplication happens. And then what we see is the salvation comes. And and all of chapter 4 is the story of how God delivered them. And chapter 5, which unfortunately we don't have a lot of time to spend there, I'll make point to some things, is a a song. And it's a song of Deborah. It's a song of praise. It's a song uh, giving God the credit for what, what happened here. And, uh, and it gives us further details as well. So here's the story of Deborah. We see that she's a very unique judge, right? She, she is a, a prophet, and, and, or she's a prophetess, right? She's a woman. And she doesn't actually do any of the fighting. 
but she leads more from her, her wisdom and her character, and, and she judges Israel by, 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 uh, by selling disputes. It tells us that she sits under this, this palm trees and deals with these judicial matters. Right? She's, she's leading, and she's, she's helping keep peace here in Israel. And, it, and she's most like, if, if you know Samuel the prophet, Samuel was the last judge and the first prophet. So she's very much like Samuel, who never fought, but was a prophet judge type. And it tells us in verse 6 that she, she summons Barak, right? She's a, as a prophetess, right? She delivers messages from God to the people. And she tells Barak to, to gather the troops. She tells him to gather 10,000 troops that, that the God will draw Sisera, verse 7, and his chariot and his troop, and he'll gather his chariots and his troops to the river uh, Kishon. Now, this is the important part of the story, the river Kishon, as we're going to see in a little while. But, but God's ordaining this, right? God's going to gather these people to the battle. And God's given him guaranteed battle, guaranteed victory in this battle. Now, so you would think, like, oh, no problem, right? Barak's like, all right, let's go kick some butt. Let's, let's take him out, no problem. But we see Barak is afraid, right? Barak is going to have to trust God. And, the, and you would think kind of, all right, this seems kind of easy. Why is, he, why is he struggling with this? Well, you have to know that this is still scary, right? You're going out to fight. And he's got to be thinking, am I going to die? How many of my men will die? Yeah, we might win, but it might be very painful. It might be very costly. Like, like how is this going to happen? And he's also probably thinking, is, there's no way we can defeat those guys. Right? They, they have 900 chariots of armor. You have to know that. That was the most technologically advanced equipment. They, there's no way they had, uh, they had you know, all the best equipment and, and armor, right? So these guys, with, with, they're probably picking up rakes and shovels and going to, the, going to the battle line, trying to make as many swords as they can, and they're going to take on these 900 chariots of armor, which would have been tanks. I mean, it's like, imagine, I don't care how many guys, you get a million guys together, and you go against 900 tanks, you're always going to lose, right? And so this battle is, looks impossible. How are we going to do this? He's going to have to trust God and, and place his faith in God and, and his promises. And so he's conflicted. And, and so his response is in verse 8. Basically, in verse 8, he says, Deborah, I'll go if you go. But if you won't go, I'm not going, Right? He's got a kind of a, a, a cowardly kind of response where he's fa- failing to, to trust God. He's demonstrating weak faith. And so Deborah's reply in verse 9 is, is very important. Her reply is, I'll go with you now, but you're not going to get the glory. Deborah tells him that, that, that the glory will belong to some mysterious woman. She doesn't explain who's going to get the glory from this victory? And, and when you read it, kind of initially, you think, well, is Deborah going to do this, right? The, is Deborah going to step out and maybe uh, in faith and, and, and win this battle for them? And it doesn't tell us. It, it, we'll see what happens later in the story. And then, strangely, in verse 11, we're introduced to another character. In verse 11, we're told of Heber the Kenite, right? Heber the Kenite was 
was from Israel, and he has separated from Israel, and he has allied, uh, made an alliance with Jabin, right? He's, he's a traitor. He's left Israel. And, and so this is an important plot of the, a plot, part of the plot that's going to be fulfilled later. Now, verses 12 through 16 records the battle scene. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I love these battle scene kind of movies where you see, you know, one army on the one side and, and the other army on the other, right? Like a, a Braveheart kind of, kind of scene, right? Like Lord of the Rings kind of scene where, where the battle lines are about to come together. And, and so you got to picture that, right? God, God's, the Israel's army of 10,000 men on one side. Sisera, the commander of, of the other army, of Jabin's army, on the other side with, with his 900 chariots are, are lined up near the rib, river Kishon. Right? There, there's no way these guys can beat, beat uh, Sisera's army. But in 14, Deborah says to Brock, Up for this day in which the Lord has, this day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? Right? She's, that's, the, that's the charge. Go. You imagine the men running. Ah, right, charge. Going out to the battle. And it says in 15 that the Lord routed Sisera, his chariots, and all his army. And they completely wipe out Sisera's army by the edge of the sword. So what happened here? Right? How did the Lord do it? And interestingly, interestingly, in Judges 5.21, it tells us what the Lord did. Because it wasn't Israel, like they didn't all of a sudden get superhuman strength and be able to take these guys out. The Lord did it. Check out uh, Judges 5.21. tells us, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. It's a song, that's why it repeats itself like that. So God did this amazing miracle, right? God drew them near the river Kishon where he wanted the battle to take place. And God sent a flood through the river, most likely caused by heavy rains to wash out the chariots. And I imagine they, they see this happening, right? All the chariots are getting washed away. And Deborah sees this charge, right? The Lord's delivered them into your hand, and, and they go and defeat, defeat Sisera's army. And so there was the, it, it's the Lord who did this, right? It's, it's almost another picture of... of uh, uh, the Red Sea, right, when, when God swept away the Egypt's army in the Red Sea. God's done it. But wait, the story's not, not over, right? Sisera, it tells us, flees. His, his troops go one way, and he goes the other. And, and Barak, right, uh, uh, the commander of Israel's army, goes after the other men. And so you're wondering, hey, what's going to happen to Sisera? Is he going to get away? Maybe he's going to gather another army and there's going to have to be another battle? Well, that leads us to the, the climax of the story. In verse 17, it tells us that he ends up at Heber the Kenite, the traitor, his camp, right? Which they would have, and they would have been living in a bunch of tents. And he ends up at Heber's wife's tent. Her name is Jael. This is the first introduction we get to Jael. And, and she welcomes him. She re reassures him. She makes him comfortable. She brings him into the tent. I'm sure maybe she gives him water, some food, 
uh, bandages, wraps his, ba- you know, cut, bandages up his wounds, and she gets him comfortable, and, 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 and he tells her, you know, hey, if anyone comes looking for, him, for me, you know, just tell them that I'm not here. You haven't seen me. And he makes a great mistake. It, he falls asleep. It tells us that she covers him, him with a rug, and he, he falls asleep. And we see what she does. And this is, again, this is brutal. I hope you don't have a, a sensitive stomach. But she takes a, a tent peg and a hammer and drives it through his, his, his temple. And it tells us that she drives it completely into the ground, completely smashing his skull. Death, the most humiliating form of death possible, right? Especially in a, a patriarchal culture to be, for this great commander to be killed by a, a woman, Right, even in our culture, in in, a, in the world we live in, right, you get beat by a girl, you're you're looked at like a sissy, right? So he gets humiliated by this woman, and when Barak finally arrives, right, to to deal with Sisera, he he finds he finds that Sisera is dead already, and and Jael, so Jael is the woman who gets the the glory. Of, of this victory that, that Deborah had predicted, right? So this uh, crazy, ironic twist. And so she, she will be remembered for the heroic act and not Barak because of his, his uh, lack of faith. After that, we see a time of silence, 531. And that's in the next chapter. We see that the land has rest for 40 years. Now, it's kind of strange that you see it, the cha- chapter 4 ends, and, and it doesn't tell us they have silence till the end of, of Deborah's song in 531. So you have to ask, well, why is the long break there? Why don't they just say, hey, it's silence, and then do the song? Well, what you see there is they celebrate, right? After, after they have this victory, they celebrate, and, and they sing songs, and they remember what God's done, because chapter 5 clearly says God has done this. God has delivered his people. There's no way they could beat these chariots unless this God worked, unless God moved. It's all up to God in his, in his sovereign hand. And so they, they do the right thing, right? They, they celebrate. They worship. They remember God. And then there's this... 40 years gap between Deborah and the next judge, right? That, the last one was only eight, but this one's 40. It's one of the longer ones. And, and, and so it makes you ask, well, why? why? What was different? Why was this so long? And I, I think it's because they sang Deborah's song and they remembered what God had done, right? They remembered. There's nothing better to remember through a, than through a song, right? Songs stick in your head. The lyrics and the and the melodies, and so I think that's what's happened. And so, what what are some applications for us as we wrap up this these stories? I think the first one is that we need to remember, remember what what the Lord has done, right? We need to sing songs, we need to tell stories, we need to read the stories that are in the Bible, right? We need to share God's stories, we need to share what God has done, so that we will remember. I think that's, that's uh, 
one of the major ways that we stay out of the sin cycle in our own life, right? Sin is always forgetting, right? Sin is not remembering God and His promises. So we have to do things that make us remember Him. And it needs to be a regular part of our, of our lives, of our homes, of remembering who God is and what He's done, right? Listening to music, reading the Bible together, praying together. These, these are the things that will keep you and your family from falling into these horrific cycles, right? Those are God's means of grace for us, right, in this fallen and broken world. Because think about this. You don't have to do anything to get all the messages from the world, right? They're coming at you constantly. You're driving, and you got advertising, and they're telling you of everything you need to buy and everything you need to be happy. And it's, it's coming to you on your phone. It's coming to you on, on the TV. I mean, we're constantly getting reminded of the world's messages. And so we must be at least as much or even more reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done. Right? And on top of that, in the world, Satan want, wants to uh, tell you lies, and so we need to cling to truth. And so I think that's a, a huge part of this story is, is they remembered, right? And, and, it, and it made the, uh, them be able to walk faithfully with, faithfully with the Lord for a lot longer. Two, we see that we have a God who saves, right? God is the one who does this. God, God not, not Ehud or Deborah or Jael or Barak. God is the one who saves these people. He's the one that, that delivers them and does these amazing miracles. And, and so these, I mean, these deliverers are, are flawed and unlikely, and we see that God can use anyone because God is the deliverer. And so, and really, that, I mean, that's the story of the whole Bible, right? That we have a God who delivers from the, the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's all about Jesus and, and his restoration plan, his, his redemption plan to save his people. The story reminds us that we have a God who saves. And he saves not because of us and how great we are, right? How good of works we do. He saves us not because of us. He saves us in spite of us, right? He saves us not because we're good, because he is good. And he does it because of his great mercy. And three, and I think this is a, a huge thing, is that we have an unexpected Savior, right? These, are, this, these stories are so unexpected. He's using uh, these random people, right? A, a, a handicapped guy, a, 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 a woman who's a hus uh, whose husband is a, is a traitor. And God's able to use all these people. And, and ultimately, they point to Jesus, who is the ultimate unexpected Savior. Right? He's the ultimate unexpected deliverer. Right? If, even if you remember, as we went through the book of Mark, when, when the Messiah was to come, they were expecting him to come in, in power right? and, and to overthrow Rome and, and to subjugate the Gentiles and, and to restore Israel to its former glory. That's what they're expecting of the Messiah. And yet Jesus comes humbly, right? born in a manger, born as a child into poverty, to some young parents. He's raised in this, in this, in this uh, 
kind of a poor blue-collar town, works as a carpenter. And then when he begins his ministry, if you remember, uh, the, the religious leaders reject him because what's this guy doing? He's, he's hanging out with, with tax collectors and, and sinners and the, the sick people and the outcast. That's not how the Messiah is supposed to be. Jesus was the ultimate unexpected Savior. And even in Isaiah 53, 53 it tells us that he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. Right? Unexpectedly, he comes not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate left-handed Savior. And he achieves his victory all alone, just like you see in these, in these stories, right? Jail, and you see Ehud working all alone, and, and, and that's what Jesus does. And, and ultimately, he, he crushes his enemies like Ehud through his own weakness, right? He became weak. He became powerless on that cross and delivers his people. And, and so we, when we read, you have, read stories like this, you always have to look forward. They're always pointing forward to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we just uh, thank you for these, these incredible stories, Lord, of where we see that you're a God that is actively involved in all of human life. These stories where we see that you're the deliverer, Lord, that you can work through any means, Lord. We even know from, from the story that you can even use evil for your good. That's how powerful you are. And we thank you, Lord, for, for showing us your power and your might, how you keep your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that you're our, you're our ultimate deliverer. We want to put our faith and trust in you and and remember you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.